Acts begins after the resurrection and starts with the church. How does the church start and how does it grow? And so uh, we've broken the, this book down into three major parts. The first one we're almost done with, uh, chapters 1 through 9. Today is we're on chapter 8, and uh, it's called New Kingdom Come. And every week as we're going through one chapter, uh, we're looking at this new kingdom that God has built. And, and every time, every chapter has a new element of that kingdom that we receive. And so we're focusing on one of those. And so our method is going to be... Um, we're going to look at the scripture, the chapter. We're going to kind of, I'll give you like a quick review of it. Then we're going to focus in on a particular area of it. And then we're going to find some application for you. And this week, uh, we're going to be looking at new opportunities that God has for us. However, before we get to that, it's our Bible memory verse time. And I have this Bible memory verse that we've been doing for the last well, seven weeks. This is our eighth weekend. So I hope it's starting to stick. But if you're new to it, don't worry about it. Um, it's pretty easy. This is the Great Commission that we find in the gospel or the book of Acts, that this is the last words of Jesus to the church. This is what he wants us to do. So it's good for us to memorize. And this is what he said. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that's Acts 1.8. We're going to receive power. You ever been in part in life where you felt powerless? When the heaviness of life or, or, the, or the size of your troubles make you feel insignificantly small, you're going to receive power. But that power is not just some wishful thinking. It's not just a mindset. You will receive power when there is a presence that comes with you. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Do you understand the power of that? That God's presence, not out there, not from a distance, but here in me, that's where the power is. And I will tell you there is no difficulty in life that makes God seem small. In fact, I think he puts problems in their place and brings us great perspective. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. God is with you. And that's what gives us then purpose, right? Even in the midst of difficult things, we can be witnesses here, there, everywhere. Today we're going to talk about, we see in the Word, how God gives us purpose, opportunity in the midst of life. And the parts of life that most people find crushing, we find God is actually crushing it. He's doing amazing things. We have a great God. In fact, let's just get to the Word. It's in Acts chapter 8. It's where we are today. So if you've got your Bibles, you want to turn there. If you have one of our Bibles, it's on page 764. If you've got your Bible today, that's okay. We've got plenty of them. It's a church, by the way. So there's a bunch of them on this uh, bookshelf in the back. And if you need a Bible, please keep it. Our gift to you. As you're turning there. This is a little summary. Chapters 1 through 6, we find that the, that the, the disciples received power when the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they were Christ's witnesses in Jerusalem. And thousands and thousands of people were coming to faith in Jerusalem just a little more than a month after the resurrection. Think about that. It was an amazing thing, something amazing happening, something difficult. We see that there was a new kind of witness, a new testimony that this man named Stephen had. He was one of the first deacons of the church, a man that was known for his grace, being filled with the Holy Spirit, a man that was respected by the entire community, different factions and everything. Everybody looked at this guy and said, he is legit. He is, he is a man of great compassion, served widows. He did all the things. He was just in faithfulness. And because of that... He was maligned, and he had a different testimony, and he pointed to Jesus, and he said, you know what, we want to make sure that we get this right. 
And because of that, we find that he was the very first Christian that was martyred. And the word martyr means that we give its testimony, its witness. He gave witness to the very truth that he's living for something greater than this. And even how he died, he didn't die like most people that, that, that suffer injustice. Instead of raising a fist of anger, even in his last breath, he says, Father, don't hold this sin against them. And then after that, the persecution of the church begins in Jerusalem, begins in earnest. As we go through chapter 8, we find that there was this guy at the end of chapter 7, there's a guy named Saul who was there. Chapter 8, this guy named Saul becomes a, he was very zealous for the Jewish faith. Believing that he was honoring God, he was going to squelch this whole idea of Jesus. And so he began to persecute the church very badly. He would go and he would arrest the, the Christians and drag them off into prison and treat them and mis- abuse them torture them. It would became very dangerous in Jerusalem to be a Christian. And so what happened was, is because of this, the Christians began to flee for their lives. They, they lost their homes, their safety. A lot of them lost family members, and they became refugees, and they began fleeing out throughout the entire region. And as they went, they took the gospel with them, and we'll get to see some of that today. And so we find that they go And wherever they go throughout Judea and Samaria, the church begins to then grow. And as they're there, we find that there is this this guy after Stephen had died, that that we have another deacon that also comes into this uh, chapter 8. And he's an amazing guy. Uh, His name is Philip. He was just like Stephen. He was a man that was full of the Holy Spirit, full of grace, full of mercy. He he demonstrated life and faith through his actions of how he cared for others. He was an amazing man. And even though he was an amazing, faithful man and highly respected amongst the people, he still had to flee for his life. And he ends up going to the least likely of places for a good Jew to go, and that was a place called Samaria. Samaria would be like a Jew today fleeing to Palestine, right? That to go in the world's eyes were his enemies. It's got to be pretty bad to be able to flee to Samaria, but that's where he goes. He flees up into Samaria, and yet even though he's there amongst people in his entire life growing up, being taught those are the bad guys, those are the ones that are the half-breeds, those are the ones that you shouldn't have anything to do with, his entire life taught this, even though he goes and he flees there, he doesn't go and just say, hey, give to me. He goes and he gives them the gospel. And Philip begins to preach grace and truth and the fact that Jesus wasn't just the Messiah for the Jews, but he's the Messiah for all of us. And what happens was the Samaritans begin to turn in mass. There is lots, thousands of Samaritans become believers. They, they are baptized into the faith. It's an amazing thing. And then what happens was as is, is, is the church begins to grow in Samaria, it was it's strange in that they were baptized into faith, but they didn't receive the Holy Spirit yet. And, and word came back to Jerusalem, and they said, they've been baptized, they're in this, but they're not receiving the Holy Spirit. And so John and Peter, they, they, they say, well, we're going to check this out. And they go up to Samaria, and they recognize that the faith was real, and they lay their hands upon the people, the Samaritans, and they pray for them, and they receive the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a lot of theologians. That is a wasp nest, theologically, as to why they didn't receive the Holy Spirit at that moment. That's not normative, by the way, but why that was. I'm not going to tell you why. I have my opinions. But I'll tell you, that's what the Word of God said happened. But then they received the Holy Spirit. And it was very clear to everybody, the people in Jerusalem, the people that were in Samaria, that they were equal part of the kingdom of God. 
The kingdom of God had just opened, just as Jesus had said. It moved out of Jerusalem. It even went to Samaria. It was an amazing thing. And God was doing this incredible work in Samaria. And the apostles themselves could hardly believe it. And they were like, wow, this is crazy. And their world was opened up. They didn't just have to love people that looked just like them. And God uses persecution to extend the church to the least likely place that the church would ever go. Because the last place a Jewish missionary probably would think of going is Samaria. And yet there it was, the church growing. And in the midst of this, Philip having this amazing ministry in Samaria, God tells him to do something that's just straight up crazy. He said, Philip, you got this great ministry going on in Samaria, but I want you to go walk on the road to nowhere. I want you to take a, a long walk down to Egypt. I want you to go on a road that not hardly anybody ever goes. It goes to a ghost city. I want you to take that road, Philip. I want you to walk on that road. And Philip is, if I was Philip, I'd be thinking like, God, you have been doing great. Now you want me to go walk on a road to nowhere? But he does because Philip is a faithful man. And he leaves the city and he walks out onto this road that's basically bypassing all the places. of It's like walking on a road in Kansas, okay? Just no matter what direction you go, right? You're going to be walking a long time before you see something, right? This is where he is. And he's on this road, and there's this very wealthy, very powerful man from the Ethiopian government. And he's one of those guys, he's got a, a, a chariot that he's in, like this... And so he's able to ride in style. It's like having like a, uh, a Rolls Royce uh, uh, t- uh, limousine, right? Like this guy had like, the, he was traveling. Like if you had money, you know, you would maybe have a donkey back then. You know, that would be like, your nor- like a, a nice car. But this guy's got a chariot. And he's sitting on there and he's riding in style on this road all the way back to Ethiopia. This quiet little road. And, and so... We have Philip who's walking along, and God says to him, hey, go, go stand close to the chariot guy. And Philip's like, all right, Lord. So he walks up next to where the, the, the man was sitting on the chariot, and he realizes this man who was sitting on the chariot, who was this high official, was, he was in Jerusalem to worship God. He, he was, he was a, a convert to, to Judaism. He was up there to worship the Lord, and he was then coming back to his home country. And on his way back, he brought some reading materials. He had a scroll of Isaiah. Now, understand, scrolls were expensive. We take it for granted. I got Bibles here. We got lots of Bibles in the back. Most of you have like a thousand Bibles on your phone. And if you don't have them on your phone, you could, right? It wouldn't cost you hardly anything. The Word of God is expensive. I mean, the scrolls, be able to write it down, these things were very costly. In fact, uh, in ancient times, it was, it was not uncommon that costly, <laughs> And so they would have one and two. This guy had his own copy of the prophet Isaiah. And there he is, riding down on this road, reading this scroll. And he's reading out loud because why not? Right? Don't have radio. So here he is. He's reading this scroll. And Philip's walking next to him. And Philip, he's listening to him read. And Philip says, do you have any idea what you're reading? Which, by the way, takes a little bit of moxie. Right? Yeah, this wealthy guy, he's reading, he has his own scroll, right? But Philip goes and just says, hey, you guys, what you reading? And the guy, surprised enough, says, well, actually, no. <laughs> I don't quite get what I'm, I'm under, I don't understand what I'm reading to him. And so he invites Philip up onto, into his, his chariot, and he says, all right, can you explain this to me? And Philip does, 
And starting at that point in Scripture, he's able to point this man to Jesus. And he gives his life to him in faith. And there he is rolling along this country road out in the middle of nowhere. And he sees some water down there. And he says, hey, look, there's water. Is there anything that prevents me from being baptized? And Philip says, no, I don't see a thing. So they go down to the water and he's baptized in the faith. And then God does something awesome because God usually does that. And where it made no sense to Philip as to why he was in the middle of nowhere, now we have this official that is a high up official in Ethiopia now as a believer, and he's going to carry the faith back even to Ethiopia. So Philip wasn't needed there anymore, so God beams him up. Kid you not. You've got to read it. It's in Acts chapter 8. And he zaps him 50 miles north to a whole other city where Philip is going to have a great ministry. After we have that really awesome thing, we, we find that there is this, a story of two major conversions. In Acts chapter 8. The one major conversion that we have is, is you have, uh, while Philip was up in Samaria, there was this guy who was a sorcerer. He, he had magic arts, and he sub- made all of the people surprised and made them believe that he was very, very powerful. He was a very good magician. And so he was a Samaritan, and, and all the people were like, this guy has got a lot of power. And then the Holy Spirit showed up, and they got to see what real power looked like. And, and this man, his name was Simon. Simon looked at the magician, right? And he, Simon was a magician. He looked at, at the apostles, and he looked at what happened when the Holy Spirit showed up, and he said, that's real power. I want that. And so he converted to Christianity, and he was baptized and all that kind of stuff, and he converted to Christianity. And then when the apostles were, were giving out uh, the Holy Spirit, they were laying on hands, and the Holy Spirit would, would come upon people, he he, de- he demonstrated that what was really in his heart wasn't conversion to Jesus. He didn't want to be saved by God's grace through faith because of his wickedness. He wanted the power that it gave him. His conversion was about him, and so what did he do? He goes up to the apostles, and he says, you got the ability to impart power. How much do I have to pay you so I can do that too? And Peter was none too pleased by this, saying, the power of God is not for sale. Thank you very much. And gives him a mighty rebuke. And say, a reminder for us that conversion to Jesus needs to be for the right reasons. And then there was a second conversion, which we talked about, which was the man that uh, was baptized down by the, in the river, the Ethiopian. A man that was of great power, who found humility, and gave his life to Christ. That's chapter 8. It's pretty amazing. I encourage you to read the chapter yourself. It's an amazing thing. But today we're going to focus on one verse. And that verse is chap- uh, chapter 8, verse 4. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to read chapter 8, verse 4. And it says this. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. How profound is that statement? And how much hope does it give us? This is a statement that reminds us that there's a lot more to life than our comfort. That life is actually, in Christ, is an amazing new opportunity. Let's look at the first part of that. It says, those who had been scattered. That's what it said. Those who had been scattered. Remember, these were not people that were in the best time of their life. These were refugees. You can turn on the television now, or you can go online, and you can see the, the plight of refugees today. It's not a good thing, is it? I mean, we see people that are being forced to... Ref- people don't choose to be refugees. It's not something they wake up, oh, I hope I'm a refugee when I grow up. Being a refugee is hard and it's painful. Refugees are people who have had their entire lives ripped away from them. 
They've lost their homes. A lot of them lost family members and friends. They've lost their communities. They've lost their jobs. They've lost every material thing that they've ever worked for. Everything from their past and their history has been stripped away from them because of the violence of a mob. That is a refugee. A refugee is somebody who is fleeing. A refugee is someone who has suffered deep and terrible trauma, who is running away, who the very fact that they are just looking to survive becomes the key focus most of their life. They go to places where they have no say, no power. They go to places where they are running to, that they are living on the mercy of another culture. Sometimes even hostile cultures. It is the point of lowest despair to be a refugee. Those who have been scattered were there. They were not in a place that God has just blessed me. How are you doing, brother? I'm blessed. There were people who were in the midst of the most painful struggle at that time. I think it was important for us to recognize that it, who it was that God did his work through, because I think it dispels for us a very common lie that God only works through me and blesses me when life is good. If I follow Jesus, I will be healthy and wealthy. That if I follow Jesus, all of my problems will go away because I'm God's child. This is not the way that we find in the story. Those who have been scattered were scattered, but not by God. They were scattered by pain and suffering and brokenness, but God was going to work in it. World, but they did something amazing. They turned the world upside down. You see, it said when they were scattered, they did something. Because those who've been scattered preached the word. Notice this. They didn't focus on themselves. What it, it's he, humans. When we get hurt, isn't it our nature to to talk about our pain, to, to basically make everybody else aware of our pain, try to draw them in to focus on it so they can validate our pain. Isn't that what we do as people? Right? Think about when even little children, when you were a kid and you fell down, you got a boo-boo, right? right? Your mom might have been inside talking with a friend or something like that, doing whatever she wanted. You fell down, you had a boo-boo. Now it's her crisis, right? You're going to cry and scream and say, I hurt. And you're going to make it better. This is now your problem. And you bring it up and, and it cleans out and she kisses it and all that kind of stuff and bandages it up and all those types of things. And even after that, you're walking around, all your friends, hey, what happened to you? You're like, look at this. Look at me, how much I have suffered. Right? It's what we do. We don't change much from being kids. We do as adults. Oftentimes, in the midst of our pain, that is the very thing we talk about. Somebody asks you how you're doing. How are you? What's going on in life? Let me tell you about my pain right now. How hard life is for me. How difficult things are. This becomes the focus. It's only about me. I'm not saying that there's no place for transparency or sharing burdens, but oftentimes what we do is we say, my problem now is everything. I want you to validate me by validating my pain. This is what I'm going, this is becomes, it's kind of natural how we work. There's a saying that's in counseling that says, hurt people, hurt people. Oftentimes we use our pain becomes as a weapon to justify our abuse of others. It happens a lot. I don't have to be nice because people haven't been nice to me. I don't have to be kind. I don't have to be generous because the world has been generous to me. I can use this pain as a bludgeoning stick. This is how we work. These were refugees that had just lost everything, just lost everything. We're in the process of fleeing. And their message was not, look at me, 
Their message was not, look at my pain. Their message was not, look at this brokenness. Their message wasn't, God has not given me the blessing that I thought I deserved. Their message was that they preached the word. In the midst of the hardest point in their life, they resisted the urge to make it about them. They preached the word. They didn't go to other countries and say, have pity on me. There is a truth that we have that we want you to have as well. I find that completely profound because this is not always my ammo. In the midst of my pain, I have found myself oftentimes drawing other people down and saying, if God was good, how could he do this to me? How can I possibly love God in the midst of this horrible stuff? How could God allow bad things to happen to good people? (laughs) And yet, (laughs) and then I lump myself in with the good people. I know better, but I still do. But I see that the early church, that those who had been scattered, preached the word. But it wasn't just that they preached the word. Look at the last part of that. It's not like just once. It says, those who have been scattered preached the word wherever they went. They didn't wait till they got to the destination. They didn't wait to say, well, there's a place that my pain will have a purpose. They didn't wait till they got to the new place, became established, and then were able to preach the word. They didn't wait for it to look like that God had, they'd seen the other side, that they had been into the promised land and, and received the promise. They weren't there yet, wherever they went, in the journey, on the process of fleeing, what were they doing? Preaching the word. Wherever they went. And they understand that the suffering that they went through, it wasn't God saying, I have rejected you. But it was new doors being opened and new opportunities. And if they were going to have to suffer, they were going to make that suffering valuable. Wherever they went, suffering provides new opportunities. So how do we apply this? This is a powerful passage in there. It's one that I memorized years and years ago. Um, and it was one that really carried me through a very difficult time in my own life. And it was when my son was born. And after he was born, uh, Thomas, and you know him like Thomas, right? Big now. He wasn't big. Uh, he got to about three months old, and then he started losing weight. And first it was like, well, okay, not a big deal. But then he started to continue to lose weight. And we had a doctor up here, a great doctor uh, named Beasley. He was a great. He still had lots of energy because Thomas was all the time energy. But he kept getting smaller and smaller, and he kept getting skinnier and skinnier. And we had no idea what was going on with our kid. And we, we would take him down to um, eventually to the children's hospital, and he did all these tests on him, and it was horrible. And it was in that time, that's when I memorized that passage, because I felt scattered. I, I, uh, suffering yourself is, is easy times over. And it was that first test, and then God was preparing me through that for a bigger opportunity in suffering that was to come next. I didn't know that. But I did memorize this verse at that time. And it was one of those verses that I kept going back to. I kept reminding myself that, that there was, that, that in this world I will have trouble. That's part of it. Being scattered is part of it. That this world is broken. There's a reason we're saved. I think oftentimes when we think, oh, if I just follow Jesus and life's just going to be perfect and roses after that point, we forget that heaven is coming. There was a reason that we had to be saved from this earth. 
That that's the promise that God had not abandoned me in that time. That there was purpose. That there was purpose in that. I felt so scattered, so un- unprepared for what I was facing, and yet I realized that there was power in it. That verse became a strength to me. I realized that, like it says, and we have to get this as brothers and sisters. In this world, we're going to have trouble. God doesn't just allow good people to suffer. God, he's allowed all people to suffer because he's allowed us to have free will. And our free will causes us to do things that we think are right, like Saul, that cause great suffering to other people. That's the problem. We all have our own moral compasses. We all have our own little armies. Or we have our own little nation that we build, our kingdom of me. And when the kingdom of me comes into conflict with the kingdom of you, there is war and there is conflict. I have never seen a war in the history of mankind, and I love history, where one side said, yep, we're the bad guys. Everybody feels justified. I've done a lot of marriage counseling. I have never gone to a marriage counseling session where I had two people sitting in front of me, one of them saying, yep, I know I'm totally in the wrong. The thing is, we are broken. Our moral compasses are askew. We are selfish and we are self-righteous oftentimes, and we hurt other people sometimes and oftentimes in the name of what we think is right and good. Our lives cause pain to those around us. That's what sin does. And then we do things we know are bad. And that also causes pain and suffering. On top of that, this world is broken. Nature itself. Death entered this world. Bad things happen to everybody. Okay? That's why we get a new world. That's why one of the promises of Jesus is not, oh, you're going to be saved, right? But then we also, there's going to be a new world coming. All of this gets burned up, by the way. Like, this great body that God gave me, I get a new one, right? So many wonderful things in it is still broken, and that's why there's a new one coming. There's a reason we get a new one. This one's broken, and broken things cause pain. In this world, you're going to have trouble. It's just the way that it is. If you are facing trouble in your life, you are not alone. You are part of every single human ever. That's part of it. How often in our life, in our faith, do we we see people walk away from God because they suffer? When suffering comes, they say, well, I can't believe in God because I hurt. You know, Jesus even warned us that would happen. He told this parable. He said, the kingdom of God is like a farmer who goes out to sow his crops. And he takes his seed and he he sows his seed all over. And some of the seeds fall on a path. And and when the ones that fall on a path, the birds just eat it. Never even takes root. Then other ones, they fall on the soil, the kind of, and the rocky soil. And so they start to grow immediately, right? But then they hit, the roots hit the rocks, and then they die. And then others, they fall amongst the weeds. And they, they take root, and they start to grow. But then the weeds choke them out, and they die. And finally, some fall on good soil. And then uh, they just grow and produce a, a multiple, multiplied kind of crop. They have lots of seeds that fall from them, right? They have very fruitful. And because we're people and we didn't want to make, Jesus wanted to make sure we didn't miss this, he told us what it meant. He said the kingdom of God, he said he's a farmer, the kingdom of God, the, the seed is the gospel. And the ground is our hearts. And he says some people's hearts are hard. And the gospel, they hear it, but it never takes root. And the, and the birds are the devil and they just kind of steal it and they never become Christians. But at least they had the seed fallen. Some people, he says, are like those who are in the rocky soil. 
and the word of God, the gospel plants in their life, and quickly they become believers. They become, they have faith, and the gospel takes root, and it starts to grow. But then it hits the rocks, and the rocks are hardships. And when they hits the rocks, their faith dies out. This was a warning for us. I, here's, a, here's a little tip for you, if you're a gardener or anything. Dirt has rocks, right? All dirt has rocks, especially in Estes, right? If you are in Christ and you became a Christian, your roots are going to hit rocks eventually. You've got to press through. You've got to allow your, your faith to go deep so that way your faith isn't choked out. This was Jesus. He was warning us and telling us and giving us a heads up. This is promises to the church. Here are his promises. You're going to be persecuted. You will suffer. There are going to be people that you know and love who are going to turn against you because of this. And there are going to be times you're going to be alone. But also this, I'm never going to leave you nor forsake you. And you're going to have a new life and a new kingdom. And now we'll take care of you in the process. And you will have my power to do my purposes in the meantime. That's his promise. Part of that, yeah, you're going to suffer. If you are suffering today, I find no joy in your suffering. I take, I take no pleasure in knowing that you are hurting. And neither does God. That's why he died, and that's why he rose again, and that's why he's making a new world where there's not going to be suffering. This is not his pleasure that you are in pain. But he will give purpose to it. If you are here today and you are hurting, I want you to know the very truth and the hope of God. That not only in this world you have trouble, but the other thing that we find this, that he says, is that take heart, he has overcome this world. Let me go back to that. Take heart, he says. He has overcome this world. Your suffering was known by God, and he has overcome it. That's the joy. That's the good news of Jesus. That he's going to do something in that. What does it mean when he says he has overcome? Does it mean that God just magically makes your troubles disappear today? No. It doesn't mean that he's only going to work to take away your troubles in the future. That we just have to suffer in this life until we get to heaven, and then it'll be good. But right now, I'm just going to suffer... Pointlessly. No, that's not what this means. What this means is that in this trouble, you're going to have purpose. That's what it means. That today, if you're hurting, there is purpose in it. God is able to do something. Those who had been scattered preached the word. They fulfilled God's promise. You're going to be his witnesses where? In Jerusalem, which they were doing, but also now in Judea and Samaria. There was purpose in it. God didn't scatter them. Wickedness scattered them, but God was going to use it to get his gospel to places that maybe had never gone before. That your suffering today has real purpose. And how you suffer matters. How we suffer is actually a great testimony. That's why we use the word martyr, which means witness or testimony, for people who have suffered for their faith. <laughs> have you ever known somebody who just looks like everything in their life fell you know, into their lap, that they just had the easy life? And then they try to give you advice on something, a problem that you don't think that they've ever struggled with. Doesn't it almost make you nauseous? Like, how on earth can you possibly talk to me about this? You have no idea. <laughs> You've had the perfect life. But when somebody comes to you and you've seen what they've walked through and that it didn't destroy them, that, there was, that they've seen how God's carried them through, that they have, they have moral authority to speak. And God works in our suffering. Our suffering can either choke out our faith or it can drive us to Jesus. 
It can drive us into faith and how us to trust God. In Matthew, Jesus said this, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and say, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. He says, Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way the, they persecuted the prophets who went before you. You're going to suffer. It's going to happen. But God's going to give purpose to it. Even when people malign you, say awful things about you, you know, assassinate your character. Don't freak out. Jesus says throw a party because he's looking at the big picture. But in the midst of it, there's a reason that we throw a party, not because we're weird. Christians aren't people that walk around and say, yay, I'm suffering. Nobody does that. Christians are those who say, yes, God is going to use this suffering. And I find that a lot more powerful. If I struggle, then God is at work in it today because the promise is you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. That's what it said. And that's been the promise since the beginning of the church. Wherever I go, God is now in me and with me in my struggle and even in my suffering. I can rejoice and be glad. God is at work. He's going to reward me in heaven, but also this, I'm in good company. I'm in good company. If you struggle, if you suffer, even as a believer, know this, that God has not abandoned you. He is not rejecting you. He is not punishing you. He punished Jesus so that he wouldn't have to punish you. He may allow us to suffer the brokenness of this world, but he will also bring a redemptive purpose, just like he did in Christ, through you. He will show his life in the midst of this world's darkness and brokenness. Rejoice and be glad. That's what it says. Second Corinthians says, Praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. Understand that in the midst of our struggles, in the midst of our pain, that God is not only with us and going to provide us the grace, the comfort we need, but he says he's going to give you purpose in this. He's going to be enabling you, empowering you to have a voice to help others. You know, before my wife and I really struggled or suffered, uh, we, we've always liked helping people. It's one of the reasons I got to be a pastor. I love, and so does my wife, to be able to help other people. We're in the helping business, I usually say, right? We care for people. I love that, right? And, and we were both wired that way. We both are in pain and saying we need help. Not because they're in pain, but the fact that we can help. I love that. It gives my life purpose and meaning. It was awesome. But for a long time in our life, whatever we did seemed to work. And so even though I love to offer help, I was not very good at receiving help. And then the Lord provided opportunity we couldn't ignore that we needed to receive help. And it was really hard. And, and people around us said, Aaron, we want to help you and your family. And I said, no. And Amy said, no. We're helpers. We're not helpies. And I realized I was arrogant. Because it's a two-way thing. I was denying people joy of being able to do the very thing that brings me great joy. But it was the hardest thing that I've ever done. And I'll tell you, I've done some difficult things. But this was the hardest thing I ever did, by far, receiving help from people who knew me. It was also the most liberating and freeing and life-changing thing. And what it has done is empowered my ministry to help other people. I have a different level of compassion. I don't give as though it was charity. I give as though it's an act of opportunity, of, of, of uh, privilege, to be able to stand with somebody else in pain. God comforted me 
through the church. God comforted me through his word. God comforted me through the help of other people. God comforted me in a lot of ways in all my troubles, but now he's also given me a platform to be able to help others in their troubles. You know, God is empowering you. If you are struggling today, this is not what defines you as far as what has broken you. This will give you maybe a point in life as a training. Maybe it defines you in a different way as how God has empowered you to help other people. Everybody suffers. But God is at work in our suffering. And he's empowering, he's growing us in this. So this is what we find that in purpose, you will have power. That's the promise. That's why we've been memorizing this first every single week. You will receive power. This is not a joke. Do you feel that your problems are bigger than you? That the world is too broken, more broken than you? Yeah. There is never a time in Scripture that God says, I'm never going to give you more than you can handle. God says, I'm never going to give you more temptation than you're going to be able to, to handle. He says, I'm not going to give you more pain or more difficulty. That's not the promise. He's promised that he's never going to give you more pain or struggling than he can handle. Look what Jesus said in John 10.10. 10. He says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that you may have life and have life to the full. Guess what has happened in this world since, since the fall? We have death. We have things robbed from us. We have this. This is what the enemy does in our life. But look at this. Jesus is bigger. And he says, I have come that you may have life. And not just a little life, but you're going to have life to the full, bubble, bubbling up like flowing out of you, just so it slashes about, right? If you were like a container, right? It, it, God has got life in you that it says it's going to be like a spring that just kind of flows out the sides wherever you go. It's just like a bucket that has a hose attached to the bottom, and wherever you take it, it's just spilling out everywhere. Kind of like even if you are a refugee and you are scattered wherever you go, the word of God just splashes out. This is the power of God in you. You don't have to wait till you feel full. There is a fullness of life in you. If you are in God, if you are in Christ, his work is greater than the work of the enemy. The enemy came to kill you, steal your joy, destroy you. Guess what? God came to make you alive. And his life is in you right now. And it's bubbling out. And you could be a refugee. You could be cast from your home. You have everything taken away. And you could say, guess what? You can't take away the greatest things. You can go to those with whom you are a refugee too and say, we have something to give you. This is the power of Christ in you. The power of Christ. Suffering has never removed us from God's power. Never. In fact, God's power is made manifest, evident through suffering. Look what it says in 2 Corinthians. It says, we have this treasure, this life, jars of clay to show But this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We're hard-pressed on every side, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, we're not in despair. Look at that. Persecuted. Not abandoned. We are struck down. Not destroyed. This world will do all those things, won't it? It's going to press you. It's going to... Make you wonder, bewilderment, I don't get it. How can life be like this? You can be persecuted. This world will strike people down, but it will never, ever, ever destroy us. The power of Christ in us. You'll notice that this is written to people that are in the midst of those very things. We don't have to wait. There's a, a lot of times we feel like, once I have my life together, once everything looks good, then I will worship God. 
You can serve God wherever you go. You are empowered by God to slosh out the majesty of his love and his life wherever you stand, even on the journey. And we do not fear the resistance. Our God is bigger still. So in Revelation 12, the last work, you want to see the last word on it? We read in Revelation 12, the enemy being destroyed. I love that chapter. We find saints who had been martyred, who have suffered horribly for their faith. And they're looking to God and they're saying, God, where is the time for justice and all of this, right? And we find that God is, is now beginning to respond to the wickedness. And he says this, he says, they, the saints, triumphed over him, the devil, by the blood of the lamb. That's the power of God, by the way. And the word of their testimony. They didn't love their lives so much as to shrink from death. How we suffer matters. The testimony of the witness is this, God, even if I get slayed on this earth, I get a better one anyway, so I don't have to live with fear. I love you, Lord, more than I, I love my comfort. And God, I am more committed to you than anything that this world can try to take away, which I would never get to keep anyway. The power of God overcomes the enemy. That's what's defeated him. But also, you notice this, it's the testimony. It's the word of our testimony. It's the fact that it's God in us, at work, alive. When you can say, I have suffered, and yet Jesus has carried me through. When you can say, when people look in your life, you have a jar of clay, and people are like, how is it that you have made it through this? This problem is bigger than you. You can say, yes, it was bigger than me, but it was not bigger than God. Not by a long shot. That's testimony. And that destroys the lie of the enemy that we're here on this earth alone, that God doesn't love us, that brokenness is abandonment, that there's no purpose in pain. Now God is at work. He's doing something right now. Trouble is in this world. We agree? We're going to have trouble. Don't worry. You don't have to like the trouble. It's not going to last forever. Someday it's going to seem like a light and momentary thing. That's the promise. Today it's going to seem like it's horrible and awful. I didn't go get a flu shot this week. That was like the worst thing. When I was doing it, it was like huge mountain. I hate needles. And then they poke you on purpose, right? And I'm sitting there, and that's all I could think about in the moment is like how awful it was going to be. And then it was done. Light and momentary afterwards, I feel like a wuss, being like I was all nervous about this. But at the moment, it was a big deal. Blood pressure, high, sweat, everything, right? You're struggling through something today. It doesn't mean it's small. It doesn't mean it's trivial. But it does mean this, that it's going to be taken care of. In this world, you're in trouble. If you are struggling today, take heart. You have opportunity. God is at work in you today. You don't have to wait till tomorrow till you feel God. You can see the redemption. He is at work today. And that opportunity gets this, that you have purpose then. What are you going to do? Are you going to invest the pain? Are you going to invest the struggle? Are you going to say, in the midst of this, God, yes. Are you going to do that? You have purpose today. Are you going to allow your pain to draw you close to God or away? That's the purpose. But I'll tell you what, if you choose being God, there's this. You don't just have purpose in this. You have power, the very power of God in you and with you now. He has not abandoned you. He will carry you, and he will do something redemptive even through today. The question is not, will you have trouble? The question is, where are your troubles sending you? Well, let's talk about that. 
because I want my troubles to be sending me after Jesus. That's what being a disciple is about, isn't it? Following Jesus. How do you take your pain, your troubles, and follow Christ? If you wonder today, and I'm not talking like in the pie in the sky, how do my troubles make me follow? I'm talking about very practical today. How are your troubles helping you follow after Jesus? If you don't know, like, next steps, I've got some for you. I prayed over them. I, we, we worked on this. I've got some next steps. Now, these are not from God. These are from Aaron, but they're suggestions. So if you take out your connection card, on the back side, here's some next steps that you can take so that you can begin investing the purpose and the power today. First thing you might want to do is memorize Acts 1.8. How many times did I quote that today in message? Did anybody count? Now, first service either. Here's the thing. <laughs> A lot. Why? Because this verse is not dead. It's life. It's meant for us. It's why you need to know it. I invite you, if you have not taken time to tattoo this onto your heart, then do it this week. That's why we had that little business card and do business with God. Don't just memorize what it says. Ask God and think about how it applies to your life today. Maybe what you're going to do this week, maybe it's the second thing down. You read 2 Corinthians. Why 2 Corinthians? Well, here's a book that's written to people that were struggling. They had to deal with all kinds of unhealthy things in the midst of imperfect life, and yet they find a perfect faith in the midst of it. Want to read the book? That's why it's there. Or how about this? Pray for three. You know you're not the only person in this world. Jesus said you're going to be his witness. This is for other people. And those people have names, and you know some of them. I bet you know at least three of them. And so we're inviting you through this series to pray for at least three people that you know who live in darkness, who need the love and the forgiveness of Christ. There's a yellow bookmark and a lot of the seat backs in front of you. If you haven't got done this yet, I encourage you to take one. Write down a name under each of those. I've been doing it. And pray for them. And this is what I want you to do the gospel. That's his work, to bring conviction, to bring that readiness. Second thing, pray that he'll provide opportunity. Right? At just the right time, he'll provide an opportunity for share the faith. The third one, pray that when that opportunity comes up, that he gives you the wisdom to recognize that it's there and the courage to say something. He's at work in you. If you want to do that, let me know. I will be praying over you. It's been awesome. Even today, I've had three folks who have told me, like, Aaron, we've been doing this, and I had the opportunity to share faith this week. God is at work. Maybe what you want to do is you want to take the opportunity, the purpose, and the power. What I mean by that is today, you be proactive on this. You say to God, okay, life isn't exactly how I thought it was going to be, but I'm going to stop saying, pointing at my wound and saying, look at my boo-boo. I'm going to start saying, wait a second, there is power in this. There is purpose in this. There's an opportunity in this. And you begin to begin praying for that. Say, God, what is your opportunity? How can I be faithful in this? That's what you begin doing. Begin purposely saying, God, I'm going to invest this pain for a greater purpose. If that's you, then write me down. Write that down. Let me know. I will be supporting you with my prayers this week. There's something else that you have uh, need to do. Write that down. That's the commitment that you need to make. This is your opportunity. Write that down. Of course, if you haven't had your prayer request yet, this is a great opportunity. Write that down. And here in just a couple seconds, we're going to take our offering. And as we do, I invite you to take these connection cards, drop that in the offering basket as passed, and uh, let this be an investment in your faith into the kingdom. Let's pray over these in our offering now, and then we'll have the worship team come and lead us with uh, some good worship. Let's pray. Father God, you are too big for our brains. And yet, Lord, you fill us with your spirit. You transform our hearts and our lives from the inside out. You begin to erase the broken moral laws that we've written on our hearts and replace them with truth and life and goodness. You give us the capacity to do the impossible, to love the people that are hard to love, to forgive those that don't deserve it, to care for those that will never be able to pay us back, to live selflessly in a selfish world. 
God, thank you. Thank you that you are able to take pain and brokenness and do mighty and amazing things with that. I pray your blessing and protection over this flock. Those that are here today, I pray, Father, that you would shield and guard them, that they would not suffer needlessly, but, Father, that if they do suffer, I pray that you would build them up, give them boldness and power in the midst of that, not only to overcome the brokenness, but, Father, that it would be used for something redemptive. Father, take these commitments that we've made today. Please use them. Help us draw closer to Jesus, closer to you, closer to your likeness. Take our tithes, our offerings. Father, build your kingdom in us, through us, and for your glory. We pray all of this in a wonderful, 